Now it's time for Inspirational Women, and we meet Stephanie Drimmer, a frequent writer for National Geographic Kids. Stephanie loves things science and nature, and she loves to share her discoveries in a way to capture the attention of kids. Today, she brings us her recent work, The Ultimate Book of the Future, incredible, ingenious, and totally real tech that will change life as you know it. This can provide a full summer and beyond of exploration and learning to engage our kids. Stephanie Drimmer, good morning. Thank you so greatly for spending time with us today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I am very excited to have this conversation. And uh, parents and teachers or whatever the profession might be, I trust will be also very excited because when we look at this new book of yours with National Geographic Kids, The Ultimate Book of the Future, and when we see all these futuristic pictures on the cover, I think will give uh, parents and whoever is taking care of kids during the summer a great idea of what to do with them and share with them over these next few months and beyond, of course. Oh, yeah, I hope so. I didn't think about this being a fun summer book, but it sure is. Yeah, I think, you know, the timing of it, in a way, it couldn't be any more perfect. And, you know, <laughs> not forgetting what the the past recent past has been and in terms of education and such i think this will be just a really great fun experience and also just kind of stimulate kids to just get more into studying and and learning but on a fun level yeah totally i always think that i'm trying to trick kids into learning basically so First and foremost, anything that goes into the book, it has to wow me, and it has to be totally shocking and surprising, and um, I hope that it does the same for kids. And then, you know, if in the course of learning about this totally wow stuff, they learn a little science, then that's great, but it's not something that that needs to be, you know, kind of slow them down or be a bummer for them. It should be, um, you know, first and foremost, fun. And I think that's when we really learn best is when it's something that really grabs our attention and we have fun with it rather than it being drudgery because drudgery, we're just going to zone out. Oh, I totally agree. Parents ask me uh, a lot of times how to get their kids to read more. And um, I think that I always tell them that you should just let them read to their interests. You know, I mean, I think... Sometimes we have an idea of what our kids should be reading, you know, something to expand their minds and educate them. And that kind of reading material is great. But I think anything that inspires your kids to read and be creative and kind of think about things in a new way is is amazing, whether that's nonfiction science stuff like this book or whether it's graphic novels. Exactly. And on the note of graphic novels, I know sometimes parents feel that, oh, that's not good reading for them. But if they're reading, that's the key thing. And then you establish kind of a a platform and you can only keep growing from there. I totally agree. And I do know a lot of uh, parents of kids who kind of weren't big readers and got into it with graphic novels and then found that, you know, once they felt more comfortable reading, they were picking up all kinds of new and interesting topics. And so I think it can be, you know, a bridge into more standard reading too. And if we look at this book, The Ultimate Book of the Future, there's a way that it kind of 
leans toward graphic novels only in the sense of a lot of pictures and, of course, then really great descriptions and conversations about it. So that in itself is going to, I think, be a a big draw for kids, won't it? Yeah. One of the things that Nat Geo is really great about doing is providing um, a bunch of what they call entry points for kids. So on every page, you'll find you know, it's not just text. There are there's usually a title and then some fun facts and maybe um, a little graphic. And you know, we've got interesting subtitles and sometimes we have jokes and comics. And so the idea is to sort of invite kids into the page and let them pick and choose the way that they interact with the book. And this book especially is it's not a book that you have to read cover to cover. You certainly can. But it's a book that kids, you know, they don't have to be super intimidated by. They can flip through it. Um, There's a chapter about technology inspired by animals. So if they're into animals, maybe that's a place for them to start. And if they're interested in space, there's a chapter about that. So they can kind of jump around and um, pick something that interests them. And as as a sidebar from this, because we really want to focus on this new book, but in terms of space travel and animals and and various things that uh, that are scientific, you are the author of what, a dozen or so books by National Geographic kids that are specifically geared to each of those topics. Yeah, I get to, in my job as a science writer, I get to cover all kinds of topics. So I've written about brain science and bugs and write a lot about space, doing a couple of dinosaur books uh, right now. So yeah, a whole range of kid, kid-friendly topics. So lots to, to find in uh, Nat Geo Kids. So specifically though, now with the ultimate book of the future, as you began into writing the book, how did you even determine what was going to be included? And let's start with that. Um, So the idea was, you know, let's not talk about the far future. Kids aren't interested in what's going to happen in 100 years or 200 years. Kids are interested in what's going to happen in their lifetimes. And so this book is kind of framed around um, the 2050s when kids now will be adults. And to be included in the book, everything had to make me personally go, wow. And it also had to be real technology with a couple of intentional exceptions, all of the uh, technology in this book is stuff that's in development. You know, there are prototypes and teams working on it. And so, um, you know, this is really not science fiction, it's science reality. Oh, yes, that's a wonderful phrase. Not science fiction, science reality is what we are living in. And actually, you know, thinking about what is the future, I could never have imagined as a, even a teenager that we would have cell phones that would be like our computers. I know. I I mean, when I was a kid, we didn't have the Internet. And uh, the ways that the Internet has just changed the world completely are totally astounding. And the fact that technology is just increasing exponentially means that what kids who are reading this book experience is going to be so much greater than that change of the pre-internet world to the internet world. And I mean, it's just inconceivable what kind of what kind of technologies they're going to see emerge and exciting to think about. It's amazing because, yes, the way that that information is growing is so quickly. And I said, who could imagine having a cell phone that would be a computer? But in reality, where I got my information was 
from encyclopedias at that time. So this is how drastically we have made such a leap into the future. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you think about a computer that you can hold in your hand, your smartphone, and now we're moving into an age where um, even your clothing is going to be, you know, smart clothing equipped with computers. Um, That was a super fun thing to write about. Um, Everything from, you know, umbrellas that will ping you if you leave them someplace, which for us in Seattle is, you know, (laughs) something that I think we're all doing, or at least I do all the time. Um, And uh, the other one that I really like is, um, a fabric that researchers are working on that has special microscopic structures in it that, uh, when exposed to light, actually release a burst of energy that can clean your clothes. So if you're out to lunch and you spill ketchup on your shirt, your shirt can just go ahead and clean itself. And um, I mean, I'm the mom of a small toddler, and so I think the idea of a world with no laundry is a pretty <laughs> exciting one. Well, as an adult who likes white T-shirts, I'm very excited about that. (laughs) Because what is it with white that always attracts spilling something on it? I don't know. I'm a white T-shirt girl, too, but you're right. It's uh, not the best for clumsy people, I guess. So therefore, we really look forward to this new fabric coming along. And, you know, again, with the way that uh, time is compressed, it, it may not be that far away from us. It may not. So what else in this vast book of information about the future really grabbed your attention, Stephanie? Oh, gosh. Um, there's just there's so much that's pretty, that's just amazing. Um, one of the things that I really found surprising was um, a fire extinguisher that these two engineering students developed that actually uses sound to put out fires. Um, and that seems totally impossible, or at least it did to me. But um, if you think about it, sound moves in waves that vibrate what the waves are passing through. And by vibrating them, it can be enough to separate the fire from the oxygen, which of course it needs to burn. And so just by blasting um, a specific type of sound at fires, you can actually put them out. And um, yeah, there are videos of this invention working that you can check out online. And that, to me, it has so many facets that are so helpful, how much safer that would be for the firefighters themselves, uh, both in terms of injury, but think of the smoke and the inhalation, what a difference that makes. Totally. And it's just, I mean, I don't know about you, but an invention that I never would have conceived of. It's even beyond thinking about, and to think that there are minds that that come up with this, isn't it just fascinating? Yeah, I mean, the the people that are working on all this stuff are just incredible. And I got to speak with some engineers um, who are just, it's really fun to talk to people and ask them sort of questions that an eight-year-old might have. Um, It's a good excuse, (laughs) a good perk (laughs) of the job. Well, Uh, one of the... One of the, the uh, robotics designs that I found really cool um, in that vein is this little tiny robot called Hummingbot. And um, it's in this chapter about inventions inspired by nature. And the idea is that, you know, nature has been at work solving problems for millions of years. And rather than start from scratch, maybe we should check out what nature has done and see if we can expand upon that. Uh, and that field is called biomimicry. So anyway, this uh, this robot hummingbird um, 
is designed to fly just like a real hummingbird. And hummingbirds are like the stunt flyers of the animal world. Uh, They can hover and fly backwards, which is incredibly unusual. They're the only bird that can do that. And um, because they have a special way of moving their wings. And so this little robot, it does the same thing. And it's able to also uh, hover and fly backwards just like uh, a hummingbird. So I found that pretty cool. Yes, hummingbirds themselves are so fascinating to watch and to to think of there being like this mini robot that uh, conceivably any of us might be able to own. Oh, yeah. Yeah, don't get me started on hummingbirds themselves. They're (laughs) definitely one of my favorite animals. (laughs) (laughs) And aren't we lucky in this uh, Puget Sound area, we can definitely see a lot of different ones. Oh, yeah, you can see We can see their, their stunt moves right for ourselves. Exactly, and the beautiful colors. So, yes, science is so amazing, and and you love science. So uh, on the topic, though, of, of robotics, will we really be seeing more robotics within our homes? Absolutely. I think that, you know, the way to think about robots, we sort of... I think you used to imagine that robots would be these walking, talking, human-shaped beings, you know, sort of like Rosie the robot from the Jetsons. She moved like a person and talked like a person. Um, but robots are really built to do specific jobs, and usually it doesn't make sense for a robot to be built like a person is. Um, for one thing, it's really hard to invent something that can walk on two legs. And so while there are human-shaped robots, I think we need to expand our definitions of what a robot looks like. And when you do that, you start to see robots everywhere. I mean, I have a robot vacuum in my house that I rely heavily on, and I'm sure a lot of your your listeners do too. Um, And those robots that take over jobs that are too dirty, too dangerous, or too boring for humans to do are just going to keep growing into the future. And of course, if we think about it, robotics are are used in medicine. They do some of the intricate surgeries, of course, managed by the medical professional. But uh, that just popped into mind when I thought about robots being used. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, if you, again, expand your definition of robots to include computer programs, we're finding that there are computer programs that are better at detecting cancer than human doctors. And so that's one field that, you know, we see robotics moving in. And um, also there are advancements being made in um, virtual reality technology so that doctors can practice complicated surgeries virtually before they try them out on real patients, which is pretty cool. Yes, Absolutely. And I think as kids, really, even as adults, reading this for our own selves or maybe under the guise of reading it to our kids, the kinds of ideas that can begin to percolate within the child and within us is something that really can have the potential of changing our life and directing us to a career. Yeah, I hope so. I hope kids are really inspired by what's in this book and um you know, there are even some inventions in this book that were invented by kids. Um, there's a robot designed to kind of scour the oceans and pick up trash that was invented by a kid that's in this book. Um, and also in terms of thinking about uh, kids' personal futures, um, there's a whole feature in this book about um, future careers that kids are going to have because, you know, I think 
when kids now think about what do I want to be when they when I grow up, um, the landscape of careers looks so different than it did, you know, when I was a kid. And so there are careers to consider like drone pilot, um, astronaut, um, deep sea uh, medical researcher, all kinds of careers that you know don't exist yet, but could very well be totally plausible for kids who are reading this now. And of course, when we just look around us, thinking in terms of, say, astronaut, you know, even 20 to 30 years ago, that was something for a very, very few. Now, as we see more and more space companies coming on the scene, that begins to be much more of a prospect for many more people. Absolutely. It's a a field that's definitely going to be growing in, in demand. So you're right. I mean, I think It was a far-fetched dream for a lot of kids before, and it might not be so far-fetched in the future. Right. It's it is really incredible to to think about. And in fact, you know, if we think about some of the some of what's going on, well, that could be certainly one of them. uh, One of the trends for the kind of the near future. But what else might be on the horizon that we could look forward to that's going to be part of our life? Yeah, I think um, there are so many things that are coming faster than we might think. Um, One of them is flying cars. Um, You know, we've been hearing for over 100 years that flying cars are kind of just around the corner. And actually, the first prototype for a flying car came out in 1911, if you can believe it. Um, It was not a success, as you can probably (laughs) guess, because we still don't have flying cars. but it's seeming like after all that time that flying cars really are on the horizon. Um, there are a ton of companies that have working prototypes and uh, companies working on sort of the logistics side. Where are these flying cars going to take off from? Where are they going to land? Um, and it's looking like the first places we'll see flying cars are going to be in sort of mass transit short distance areas. So, for example, um, Uh, to get you from Manhattan to JFK Airport, which as a former New Yorker, I can tell you is a not very fun hour-long subway commute, um, will be something like six minutes in a flying car. Anybody would really want to sign up for that one. Absolutely. So let's turn our focus towards something that near and dear to most of our hearts, and that's food. Are we going to be looking at food that is going to be like freeze-dried, super concentrated, or is it going to be like ultra delicious? (laughs) Um, You know, the idea for like super concentrated, you know, like a meal and a pill kind of thing (laughs) um, is something that people have been thinking about for a long time. Um, but there's a whole feature in this book called Future Fails, and that is unfortunately a future fail. Um, we're nowhere near having a, a meal that would fit in the pill, and really it's just a question of space. You know, you need about 2,200 calories a day, and there's just no way to compress them into a pill. Um, so as far as uh, instant food, I don't think that's the direction we're going. I do think we're going toward the direction of more um, fresh and delicious food as as the cities are transformed to become more people-friendly and less car-friendly, I think that we'll see more um, urban gardens popping up. And that's a trend that, um, you know, I think we've all been seeing recently. I went to a restaurant the other day that had a little container of veggies growing outside right on the street. 
And I think um, into the future, we're definitely going to move. Um, we were going to move that way. Although one direction we're definitely moving is towards eating more insects, which is um, something that sounds really foreign and maybe gross to a lot of people. <laughs> but in some cultures all around the world, people have been eating insects for a very long time. They're a totally normal part of the diet. And um, insects are really nutritious, really high in protein. Um, they're really easy to farm. They require and even like dark, cramped conditions, uh, not a lot of food, not a lot of water. Um, so they're a really easy way to generate a lot of food with a small amount of space and, and resources. Um, and so that's something that a lot of companies are working on right now, trying to come up with more palatable ways to serve us insects, um, like grinding up crickets into flour, which is something that you can buy on the Internet now. Um, okay, so how do you feel about this, Stephanie? <laughs> well, I figured that I probably should sample some insect products as research for the book, but I just really didn't want to, so I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's your prerogative. <laughs> as the author, you, you can sample things that, that appeal and then reject the others, right? <laughs> there's, uh, there's a limit to what you will do for research. It's true, it's true. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure I could quite get around that. But I wonder, you know, a lot of that is is conditioning, isn't it? So that if... Oh, 100%. If, yeah. So if kids grow up with the idea, well, this is the flower that we use, that's the flower we use. Totally. There's nothing inherently um, dirty or gross about it. It's just the way that we're brought up. So mm -hmm. it, definitely something that could change in the future. And, you know... As you had said just earlier, that there are cultures where it's natural to eat insects and they think nothing of it. So, yeah, we can see where our conditioning really comes into it. And uh, perhaps we just need to learn some more open mindedness. Totally. You know, if you think about it, lobsters and crabs are very close relatives of insects. So if you love lobster, it's really not that different. <laughs> Okay, I, I will give that some thought. <laughs> but I, I like more the idea of, uh, of what we are so open to is, is the fruits and vegetables and, and incorporating that more into our landscape and, you know, seeing uh, these flower beds around restaurants, but we have the pea patches around and, and more and more in, in some of the... Uh, uh, building complexes, they're putting in these gardens, rooftop gardens, and just spaces where there can be more incorporation of foods, right? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we are moving towards a future with uh, fewer and fewer cars, or at least the idea of um, it's just not ubiquitous for everyone to own a personal car. And if you think about it, you know, you might think that cities are designed for people, but they're really designed for cars. Um, roadways and um, especially parking lots take up a ton of our room in cities, and they really um, determine where buildings are placed. But if you remove that need for a huge fleet of cars that we're all driving from the equation, all of a sudden you have a lot of space to work with. And, you know, you can see this happening already in places like New York with the High Line. Um, 
cities are turning these roadways or um, railways into uh, garden areas, bringing in more plants, which, um, you know, protects our biodiversity, allowing more habitats for, for insects and plants and animals, um, and just making cities a more enjoyable place for everyone. You know, nobody wants to be stuck looking at steel and concrete all the time, and it's nice to be able to walk outside um, in nature just right in the middle of the city. Exactly. And don't we see some of that in terms of construction, wanting to have multi-purpose buildings so that there's some of the shopping, so it, grocery stores uh, incorporated into high rises so that we can walk nearby to get our food and not have to drive somewhere? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think you see that a lot too with companies trying to entice people to come back to the office when everyone has been away from the office for the last two years, um, incorporating things like, you know, grocery stores. Um, a lot of buildings are starting to use vertical farming to grow um, plants right on the sides of buildings and make them sort of, um, you know, urban farms themselves. And so I, I do think that's a trend that's going to continue. And this is where we circle back to the this book and all of your books with National Geographic really appealing to kids because it stimulates the imagination and gives them that that opportunity to dream and realize, oh, maybe my dreams can become the reality of the future. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I really hope that this this book inspires kids to to think about the ways that that they can change the world and realize that all these people who are inventing these incredible technologies, um, you know, the Mars helicopter was one that that went from a possible future to a reality just in the time this book took to be produced. I mean, these are just yeah, they're very smart people, but they're just regular everyday people inventing this stuff and. A lot of it is invented by by people who don't have specialized knowledge. So I think even kids can start thinking about um, how they would like to invent things to change the world. As you said about uh, collecting the plastics on the ocean bottom. Exactly. Right. So age has nothing to do with it in terms of what you can create and what can become a reality and solve very real existing problems that are uh, having adverse effect on us, our kids. Oh, right. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that in a way kids are better equipped than adults at this kind of thinking because they are not so narrow minded. They're more open to lots of possibilities. You know, they haven't necessarily been told that certain things are impossible <laughs> and, um, so I think that in some ways, kids can be a lot more creative about these solutions that adults feel sort of stuck on. Oh, it's coming back to the conditioning with those bugs again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get you to eat bugs. No, I'm, I'm trying to convince myself, too. <laughs> but it's just how, you know, if they if we nurture that kind of uh, vision and dreaming within our kids, then it can become just so natural to them and they're going to be finding the solutions and averting perhaps some of the problems and pitfalls we've gotten ourselves into. Oh, definitely. And I think one of the things that's really cool about being a kid in this generation is just the accessibility of information. Mm -hmm. You know, if you are curious 
you can go online and answer any question that you have. I mean, I know it's really my job. So I think telling, teaching kids that necess- not necessarily you need to know all the answers, that's not what makes you smart. It's curiosity and a willingness to figure it out that makes you a smart person. And, you know, you don't have to be a grown-up or an engineer to do that. You can go online and, and you can answer your own questions right now. Oh, I love that. Curiosity. Let's really put that out in neon lights. <laughs> Inspire that curiosity and help our kids to really become all of whom they could be. So let's get to the details of how to get this book. This is, and really all of the other science related books that you have created for National Geographic, Stephanie. You can find my author page on Amazon or on my website, stephaniedrimmer.com. I love getting emails from kids, readers, and I answer all of them. So if you're a reader, please say hi. I will write you back. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, and I was thinking about that. It would be so great to hear from kids about things that they have done or inventions or what they're working on. Have you actually had anything like that in recent times? A kid emailing me about an invention they've made? Yes, no, I haven't. I wish I wish that I had. I do get some really fun fan mail, though. I got a letter in the mail the other day, which was great, from a kid who drew me a whole bunch of pictures of cats, which I really appreciated. And I wrote her back and told her about my cat and how much I liked her drawing. So, Aww. I mean, any, any correspondence I get from kids always makes my day. <laughs> that is delightful. And maybe with the nature of this book, the ultimate book of the future, this might be the one that inspires some kiddos to write and let you know what they are dreaming of and working on. I would absolutely love that. Tell me your invention ideas. Yes. And they might become part of a future book. Oh, definitely. Yes. (laughs) Well, Stephanie Drimmer, this has been so fun to talk with you about this wonderful book that is the ultimate book of the future from National Geographic. And I'm glad that you have so much fun and adventure with the work that you do that, I guess, just underscores and, and really supports what we're talking about in terms of what kids can and will do. Oh, I'm very lucky. I have have a really fun job, and I I try not to take it for granted. Well, thank you for taking time to share all of that with us this morning, Stephanie. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That brings us to the end of a very full hour of Inspirational Women with Stephanie Drimmer and Sunday Morning Magazine with Dr. Nazir Ibrahim. I'm Kate Daniels, your host, and I do greatly appreciate your sharing this hour with me and these special guests. For details you might have missed or information you'd like to know, please just send me an email, k-a-t-e-d, at warm1069.com, and I will get right back to you. Also, if you'd like to listen again or share these important stories with your family and friends, find the podcast on our Warm 1069 webpage. Just click on the podcast tab, then either of the show names, and then look for the guest names. I now wish you and your family a day of fun, learning about the world and dreaming of the future. Have a week of the same and then please plan to join me again next weekend for another hour of Sunday Morning Magazine and Inspirational Women on Warm 106.9. Good morning.